Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Investment News Podcast. I'm Jeff Benjamin, co-hosting, as always, with Bruce Kelly. We are talking today with Mike Tiedemann, CEO of Alvarium Tiedemann Holdings. We're going to talk about uh, kind of the route to uh, the public equity markets for RAAs and where Tiedemann is right now and uh, where it's going. And uh, I, I know there's going to be some talk of a special purpose acquisition company in there, which is always fun. Uh, before we get going, I want to thank our sponsor for this episode, Schwab Asset Management. Bruce, how are you doing today? I'm good, man. It feels like you're you're struggling a little bit over there with the <laughs> with something. What are you, you okay over there, buddy, or what? Uh, I just got a little laryngitis. It's uh, <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't kill you, but it, are you it yelling like at it. the the TV again? <laughs> Shaking your yeah. fist and yelling at the news, Jeff. The football's over. I don't yell at the TV anymore. <laughs> okay, we got Mike Tiedemann here today. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Bruce. How are you? Thanks for having me on today. Well, thank you for being here. Mike, tell us a little bit about yourself and your uh, your operation over there, and then we'll get into the public equity markets and that whole pattern. Personally, I'm a born and raised New Yorker. I'm a, a father of four. I'm the youngest of four kids, and uh, I was one of the four initial founders of Tiedemann Advisors back in uh, late 99, 2000. And I can answer any questions you have about that, but... Uh, not sure if you're more curious about personal or business. I'm happy to talk about either. Well, probably at this point, the business. We want to know, uh, you know, tell us about uh, Tiedemann, Alvarium Tiedemann Holdings. You guys operate under a different brand, right? Or you're rebranding in the in the process of that? Yeah. So the, the, the combination of the firm, it was really three firms. So there were two Tiedemann businesses that were always operated separately. One was founded in 1980 by my father, Carl, as a hedge fund platform, is a hedge fund platform. Uh, manages a little under $9 billion of capital uh, in various strategies. And then the Tiedemann Advisor business, uh, which we began, which has always had an integrated trust company or trust operation based in Delaware, uh, and really set up to be a multifamily office, multi-generational investment and service model, open architecture model. So the two businesses operated separately from one another for 20 plus years. And as we began our discussions with Alvarium, which is largely a non-U.S., both in client base and in, in investment activity. Uh, they had two sides of the business. One was real estate, direct investing in real estate, both publicly and privately. So they have some listed REITs, or we have some real estate REITs. And then they have the identical open architecture, uh, but largely based all over uh, Europe serving clients throughout Europe as well as uh, Hong Kong. So the footprint and the geographic footprint on the wealth enabled us to, in one combination, have a global operating platform for very large families to be able to op, you know, serve them irrespective of, of where they reside or, or their various residences. Hey, Mike, you, you guys are based in New York, right? I am personally based in New York, yes, but we have offices throughout uh, the U.S. and obviously throughout Europe and increasingly so in Asia. Right. And and so uh, just before, uh, this is kind of a New York-centric question, I guess, before we get into more the details of the merger and the listing and everything. Um, when I typed your name into Google, I saw that Gwyneth Paltrow was like the first person to pop up or the first term, you know, how people, when you type people's names into Google and, and other things appear. What's what's going on with that? Are, are you, how are you linked to, to Gwyneth? Because we had Joe Duran on here a couple of weeks ago, and he had done, uh, or we had people from Goldman Sachs here recently, and Joe Duran had done a Goop uh, uh, 
uh, talk, not with Gwyneth Paltrow, but somebody else recently. So I, I just I'm curious as how to Gwyneth Paltrow's getting into the financial advice business. I guess <laughs> uh, Gwyneth is one of my oldest and, and uh, dearest friends. So we have uh, agreed, I was you know lucky to have just an amazing group of guy and girl friends from New York City, and and, and she's one of them. So we, we're all there. A, a very Fabulous group of, of friends that are all still together, but uh, you know Google likes to put relevant people. <laughs> Do people ask search. you about that often, or how does that how, how does that play out? Not too often. I mean, it, it's uh, I mean it's fun. I mean, through she's an unbelievable person, friend, and you know uh, has just had incredible success in, in everything she's done, and um, so it's a lot of fun to be with her. I learned from her a lot, and we, we were very open about running businesses and, you know, challenges over time and what have you. And, but, uh, she also, it's fun to be around her because you can imagine the people that are in her orbit. Oh, the dynamic of that kind of celebrity is just, you know, but she's, she's a terrific, terrific, unbelievably loyal friend will be the first one to be on a plane, you know, in a time of need. So, uh, huh. yeah, really great friend. So it's, so just going back a little bit. So I was always at when, cause you and I have spoken several times, uh, you've been very gracious and we've done interviews uh, just about the business in general and, and helping me understand the business and, and the like. But, but I was understand that the firm was more family centric um, and that your father kind of handed off something to you as a firm, but you're saying it's more se separately. It was more separately divided on, on the hedge fund side and the wealth management side. Yes. I mean, we, and that was very much by design. We really felt when we started the business and still feel as strongly today, uh, but I think now more, uh, more people feel this way is that th there were a lot of conflicts in the advisory business at, uh, at the inception of the firm. And we really, from day one, set out to extinguish that. And that was the late nineties, right? Correct. Like late 90s, early 2000s. So the dot-com craziness, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and every, was... talk about conflicts all over the place, right? Correct. Um, and so we, we, there were also a lot of mergers at that time. So right. the late 90s, all the banks were merging. So the service models were collapsing. The number of people that advisors had to cover or, um, you know, let's call it the, the person behind the advisor. So the administrative advisor on a team would go from 20, 30, 50 families to 50, 80, 100, 120 families. So the service models were really deteriorating. So we set out to really focus on the high end of the market to have a limited number of uh, families per professionals. And so we, from day one until today, we manage the capacity, the human capacity. Obviously, systems are hugely important to supplement and create efficiencies around that. But that was always part of the service model. And, uh, and then the, the delivery of the investment model has always been open architecture. Uh, we benefited from ha being in the alternative space. It gave us a great network. Um, and really an understanding of the realities of operating a hedge fund business, for example, the capacity right. strategy you have. So there was a lot of like interesting and very important in the, in the outset of building the business. Uh, but the foundational components of what we set out to do day one are the same as they are today. It's just our footprint is obviously much larger and our scale is larger. And where were you coming from, you and your team? Were you coming from like the private banking world or were you coming from the wirehouse world or, or where did you get your background and training in? Sure. The founders of the business had uh, J.P. Morgan origin. Right. So we there's a lot that, you know, of the big banks, we think they do a very good job. And, and, and there's in particular, their service model was one that we sort of emulated, emulated. And then we said, but let's really orient it towards the very high end of the market. And we saw 
the needs that fam- and the evolving needs that families have uh, over generations with the changing tax structures, the estate planning, the investment interest, the impact investing, family governance. I mean, all these things were areas of our firm that we've invested heavily in and and seen the benefit of. And the, we see the benefit of it because the families see the benefit of it. Uh, and they're able to work with us. So we're not just managing portfolios. We're really integrating into their family and helping them sift through all these decisions that are very intimate, very personal. Right, it's real family important. office focus. Yeah, yeah. But, but yeah. That, that term sometimes connotates sort of administrative, uh, and there, oh. it, there are components to that. But okay. this is much, much more involved, I would say, in, in terms of the, the key um, decisions families are making over time. Right. So, I mean, just, you know, so late 90s, then you have, you launched a firm, 2008, credit crisis must have been another opportunity, right, for, you know, uh, both financial advisors and, and wealthy clients and all kinds of clients, right, looking for an alternative, a different way to manage their money. Um, and then, you know, 10 years of low interest rates, the pandemic, and you guys decide to go public. It just, what is that, what is that journey? I mean, it's, it's a, you've really built something here. What is that journey like and what, and you guys did announce about a year and a half ago, I think, that you were merging, that Tiedemann was merging with Alvarium and you were going to create this new entity, this new company, as you say, it's called Al, you're calling it, rebranding it, calling it Alt, which is the stock ticker, A-L-T-I, I believe. Yes. And then you had the IPO uh, January 4th of this year, January 3rd, January 4th. That's right. Um, it, it went public. Really tough time to go public. So there's a lot there to unpack. I, just, just like, what is the, <laughs> what's the journey like from growing this thing to actually having it list how did that all come about? Why did you do that, I guess? Sure. Well, you, that was a trip down memory lane. Um, <laughs> I <laughs> so cause we, people panic in flashbacks when I do. You know? <laughs> yeah, we, we, uh, I mean, as you, as you list that history, you know, it is almost a quarter century right. in business. And sort of when you list all those, those events, it sort of reminds you of that fact. Occasionally you lose, lose sight of that. Um, you know, the, the financial crisis was... Uh, was a reminder of uh, the importance of the conservatism that we ran the firm with right? Um, and the balance sheet that we always had. And I'll give an example because that was just a point in time where we were making really conservative divestment, uh, protective uh, investments beginning in 2007. We thought the credit crisis was going to begin earlier than it did. And so it gave us an opportunity to really remove a lot of invested capital out of hedge funds, credit strategies, et cetera. Um, and that so you're one of the firms that, that said, uh, hey, something bad could happen, even though we were all told yeah. right in 2008 that no one could ever have seen this happen, you know? We, we were pretty, I was a pretty depressing dinner date back in 2008. <laughs> <laughs> Had a friend of mine, he's like, you sit next to people and they're like, God, that guy's really depressing. He's talking about buying gold and, you know, the world's coming to an end. And, you know, uh, <laughs> But uh, we, we really felt as though at uh, at that time we saw the securitization market as just a huge issue, as well as right. in, we said in best case scenario, it's going to go away. It's just a huge profit center to the banks. It's going to go away. In worst case, it was going to be something we didn't understand how um, 
how it wouldn't end terribly. And it was, it was and very when you say securitization market, you mean the... CDO, right. the, all the collateralized debt obligations related to mortgage securities. All and, these ultra-sophisticated financial products. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, I had the benefit of having a father who's of an older generation with a lot of, let's call it brand name, Wall Street people. And I would ask them if they understood it, not a single one understood <laughs> it. And so I, then when I found myself explaining what a CDO was to a legend in the private equity business, for example, and they would start asking me questions and I was like, wow, you know, it was just unbelievable. It was just a, it was a very un uncomfortable time and luckily we made good protective decisions and cdo is credit default obligation i believe Th that's right C uh, collateralized debt collateralized debt ob obligation yeah, yeah. anyway they, i don't want to belabor that point but that was a that was a a time when you know then you roll the clock forward in 08 and it's actually happening and uh we had the ability to we had all, a lot of liquidity for our clients and there was just zero appetite to reinvest that into many things so it took us a harder it was a hard it was an interesting lesson we also prior to that we were getting people were taking money from us because we were raising cash so i mean it was just those are things that you go through in time and you really go back and reflect on all the lessons learned and the psychology of investing and and the fragility of of um uh, of, of of the economic and financial system at that time the decisions being made by paulson and you know all the bernanke that was a i was happy to not be in their seat but uh, we survived, and uh, and you know a year later we were signing a, a lease in New York. I'll never forget looking, walking through through uh, all these empty halls of buildings, and I mean every, every floor plates were available everywhere. And and I remember when we finally settled on our our building here on 520 Madison that you know I, we had lined up two five-year you know leases, and so it was a ten-year lease. And I said, hey, let's add another five years. And everyone looked at me and said, fifteen years. I said, look. We're either going to be out of business because, because there was no visibility at the time. Anyone was telling you they understood how the system was going to recover or whatnot. I said either it's going to be a great lease in 15 years, or we're going to be out of business right. anyway. So either way, we might as well try to get as much duration as possible. And obviously, we were able to grow the business, and um, we're still in the same office. And so then you. Obviously, you know the financial advice market has just you know taken off after that helped a lot by low interest rates, um, the transfer of wealth between generations, of course. So you're yeah. running up to, you know, COVID, the COVID times to 2020. And then in 21, right, uh, yeah. you all say you're doing this merger and have an eye on a listing. Why do that? I mean, the, you know, I was thinking about, I, again, thinking about history. I mean, you think about... Um, uh, all the way back to 2005, Rick Edelman yeah. uh, merged with Sanders Morris Harris out of Texas, right? And that listing only lasted to 2012, I believe. Yeah. And then he sold back to private equity. Then right. you have Rudy Adolph at Focus Financial Partners. Yep. One of the really industry leaders, right, in terms of the RIA aggregator market. He's one of the guys who invented it along with Joe Duran and some others, they go, they finally go public in 2018, the summer of 2018, the stock bounces around between 20 or 30 and 50 bucks or something like that. And then they recently, a few weeks ago said that they were the, um, in, in talks, I believe to go private again. So, and then you guys launch and you're a, 
I, I haven't checked out the, the market capitalization, but you're trading around eight, between eight and 10 a share, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, what is the purpose and advantage of the uh, IPO and sure. why list and what could you tell other, because the RIA space is growing, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt about that, right? By all the metrics. But, and I, but I think there is this overhanging question when does it make sense to go public? Why go public? If you're an RA, how big do you have to get? Do you yeah. misalign yourself with your clients if you're public? There's all those kinds of things that people talk they're about. All, these are, they're all very good, very fair questions. Yeah. I, one thing, but one thing you mentioned, you were talking about zero rates being good for. I actually think zero rates, um, and you know, we're learning this now. Well, they're good for the stock market. I mean, they're, yeah, I don't they, know well, they're good, good for, for risk, investors, but good for good. risk assets. They're yeah. terrible for societies because they, you know, uh, you know, you have to remember, 08, the banking system essentially closed for anyone but the one percent in corporations. So right. the wealth gap exploded, um, and so that so that just generally leads to societal issues over time and wealth dispersion that it's very hard to you know, normalize. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, I, I, it also makes a lot of. Um, uh, passive investing and, and a lot of things that advisors really, I think, can specialize in, less valuable. So well, it's a disincentive to save money, right? I mean, if you also can't that. get a little yeah, bit exactly. of interest on your money, or, yeah, you know, or savers were punished. Exactly, yeah, exactly. That, that said differently. Um, so, why, why public? Well, first of all, let me start by our our timeline has always been to create a permanent entity, and that is an ode to the fact that we. Day one, we're, actually, we were branded initially Tiedemann Trust Company. A lot of creative branding, Tiedemann Trust Company, Tiedemann right. Advisors, et cetera. That, that is my father. My father uh, was born in 26. His father passed away, or actually took his life in the Great Depression. Um, and my father, Your grandfather. My grandfather, yeah. Oh, my gosh, that's terrible. In 1929. And so my father and was... And your father was born in 1926. 26, yes. He was a few years old, and he was determined to rebuild the Tiedemann name, and to also be, um, you know, a, a sort of internal optimist. So optimism wow. for him was sort of a, almost a form of survival. I used to compare my own level of optimism. I'm pretty optimistic, but I, I'm also I sort of I'm a pragmatic optimist. Perhaps my father was sort of almost, you know, just once he believed in something, there was almost no convincing him. He couldn't even in the hardest of times, which was great trait as a leader, but. Um, at times you hung on too long to some business or right. you know, individual, whatever. Anyway, um, we our permanence guided every decision we've made, and we you better believe we received a phone call a week from Capital, looking to buy into our business, and you and every other billion dollar plus RIA. There's a lot there, right? of money. There's a lot of, and there's still a lot of money. It it creates valuation backdrops that are very hard to say no to. Um, but my view was a path to permanence uh, as a firm, as an RIA business with a trust company embedded. Number one needed to be global to really serve the very high end of the market. Number two. Um, would possibly misalign it. I don't want to sound critical of private equity firms. They're doing their job and they're very good at what they do. Not all equally, but there are a lot of very smart ones and very you know, high quality investors in that space. Um, but it, you are then, 
in one of several transactions. So you begin a litany of transactions. Right. That's in the first generation. We're entering, you know, so let's see how that goes over the next decade. It may play out perfectly fine for clients. I, my concern was, our concern was that that would create um, a misalignment. You mean selling to a, a piece of the firm to a private equity investor? Yes. Right. And so the important thing about this listing is we're not just an RIA. We have a real estate and asset management business. The reason why that's important, the RIA business and our high-end service and sort of you know limited, like really very high end of the market wealth model has a sort of a range that is natural that or of organic growth, or let's call it maybe realistic that is organic organic growth. The asset and real estate side can scale faster. You can do more inorganic acquisitions there or deals there, and that actually, as a public company, offers other avenues of growth, different times of growth. I, you know, you have offsetting cycles of growth and more duration of cash flow in aggregate as a business, that then can be reinvested into the business lines. So we have the business lines separate, asset management and wealth management. I would not have taken, I don't believe, I would have taken the wealth management standalone public as a business model. That's a really important distinction, I think, to make for you know the listeners and, and other big aggregators out there, I think. Public markets demand growth and this is i mean this is again this is important uh to understand public markets will demand growth or if you're in an environment where other things are growing faster than you're able to grow you'll be sort of left you know for dead as a public company right you won't get a lot of interest you have to have offsets you have to have parts of your business that can scale and grow and ultimately generate earnings free cash flow you know etc and then those reinvestment decisions over time will ultimately determine how great an aggregate business you build. And that's, you know, part of, a big part of my job will be, you know, evaluating the ways in which we can grow over time, retain our really great people, continue to improve our service and investment model for our clients. And that can be a client, an institution that's in the fund or, you know, a, a very large family that works just with our wealth group. Schwab Asset Management is proud to sponsor the Investment News Podcast. In today's complex world, Schwab Asset Management provides a simple, straightforward approach to investing. As one of the largest and most experienced asset managers, they offer low-cost core ETFs for building the foundation of a diversified portfolio. Their focused lineup, which includes market cap index and strategic beta ETFs, is a reflection of a commitment to deliver exceptional experiences to investors and the financial professionals who serve them. Learn more at schwabassetmanagement.com backslash ETFs. That's schwabassetmanagement.com backslash ETFs. Just something you just mentioned there, Mike, about um, you wouldn't go public if you were just an RIA. I think that's, I'm paraphrasing, but you have to know the, the kind of the, the rough road that publicly traded RIAs have, have seen. There's not a lot of success stories out there. Do you, do you feel like that RIA side of it is a little bit of a drag on your your performance as a publicly traded company? And and also, obviously, you I think you already mentioned that private equity has been knocking on your door. 
why are you why i mean everybody's opening their doors to uh, to private equity you guys are just not interested at all <laughs> no, I, again i i, I um I, well let me ask and so for starters my personal view is that a standalone wealth management business as a public company it can be i just think a better public company is one that has uh, complementary, non-conflicting, complementary asset management or other capabilities that can scale, grow, generate revenues that are offsetting at different you know, cycles of capital markets than just a single line wealth management business. The aggregator model, um, not being overly specific about who we're talking about, the aggregator model and there are different flavors of what that means, is a different approach than what we have done when we have combined businesses. We fully integrate any team or firm that joins us because, number one, controls, compliance, oversight. Uh, and the other, the, and the main, really, the fun part answer, of the answer is once you're integrated, you're collaborating, and that usually leads to great organic growth or sustainable organic growth, and that's really ultimately what creates a valuable business over time. What about the? Can you elaborate a little bit on the on your your taste or lack thereof for uh, private equity? Uh, again, I, I don't. Um, everyone has their uh, personal view as to uh, what alignment or misalignment can mean, and I, I think uh, when you have a firm, they have a mandate. They have a mandate to allocate capital at a price, and then to return that capital to the shareholders on a time frame, that's usually five to 10 years. And so you know that from the entry point to there, you you're on the clock to, for their next exit. And that's okay, so long as the growth expectations can be executed in a manner that doesn't ultimately damage or diminish your model. So I think it absolutely can work. I think anyone taking money should understand what is going to change and make sure that they can implement that change and that growth while, let's say, protecting, preserving their, the business model, the people, and the clients in the in inverse order. <laughs> the clients, the people, and the business model would be the rank order uh, that got them there. In this day and age, I'm impressed with any... RIA of any size that can fend off the, the, the wily ways of private equity. The, and when, have we mentioned your AUM? You guys are $26 billion or something like that, right? Uh, yeah, at this point, we're, the wealth side is over 40 globally. Oh, okay. Yes, it, well, that's the combined. And, and, and then the asset manager has more, too, right? The asset manager is about 20. Yeah, so we're about $60 billion Wow. Um, in total. And, um, and and what so the, the fun part about again going back to sort of I'm I wrote, I'm a big shareholder why SPAC you asked me that I didn't answer it I'm not dodging it um, <laughs> you merging three businesses privately really hard virtually impossible what the the idea to do this the, the the industrial logic of putting these businesses together creating a governance structure above it and then going through the uh, D SPAC process, which in our case took a year and a half, and some of it, you know, you go through the the global audit, the PCOB, 
audit to make sure that you know your global auditor can go through all three businesses and then begin the process of consolidating them. That's complicated. There was also U.S. non-U.S. So there's U.K. conversion gap. I mean, I could bore you with this for hours, but nevertheless, it was complicated. And then there's a regulatory process. In in our case, the regulatory process, the SEC auditor. Uh, who had done three rounds, actually left the SEC, so we got a new auditor, so that kind of extended it. <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh at your misery there, Mike, but that, I mean, that just sounds awful, you know. How did you feel when you got the news that the guy from the SEC who was in charge of your audit had left? Yeah, we hoped it wasn't our fault. <laughs> it's not bad. No, we, we, we just, uh, we, you know, we were like, um, you know, it, it, everything was taken on. But the, the benefit of that time frame, while it felt long to kind of be talking about how it was going or we couldn't talk about it because we were in public process which is a new dynamic but the you know the benefit of that is we were really starting to understand our new colleagues you know what parts of the business that we needed to invest in address improve build off of etc and so that that gave us um you know an opportunity to begin parts of the integration, even though it wasn't official integration. Uh, yeah, so in Tiedemann was New York, U.S.-based, and Alvarium was London-based, right? Yes, the headquarters were in London. We have offices in 24 cities and uh, soon to be 11 countries. So really a global... Footprint, uh, yeah. A, go- a global business here, in other words. Yes, and that, the re- we Tiedemann, prior to meeting Alvarium, had opened in Zurich, and then we brought on a, a great team in, in London, in 2021, um, Holbein, and, and so we we had already felt the importance of a lot of our families have assets overseas, and or there are offshore families that are coming to the U.S. now, um, and and actually using trust structures in the U.S. where they can have the privacy of the U.S. Um, the legal system of the U.S., which is obviously critically important, but not be pulled into the uh, to the tax system. Right. So they kind of get the security and the privacy without, and that's what Switzerland used to offer. And actually the U S offers more privacy than Switzerland, which for very large families, you know, that's obviously a huge concern. Right. And you're talking about people with, with what, 10, $20 million at no, our, our average is uh, investable with us is north of uh, is 50. And as we've been growing and gotten larger, we're, we're really talking about families in the, um, at this point, many of them are in the sort of hundreds of millions. Right. So extremely wealthy people here. Yes. Yeah. And multi-generational wealth. Right. So, and that's, and so that's the importance of having in a fully integrated fiduciary uh, you know, advice, you know, now we're not doing any drafting, the lawyers do all the drafting, but really having the ability to serve families, the various entities, think through creating new entities and just be sitting with the family, you know, and considering all of these decade long generational issues, not, you know, what are we doing this calendar year? It's really, there's a lot of planning that goes into that. And impact investing has been an increasingly important and I, I'm not talking about ESG screening, but I'm talking about actual private markets impact investing where families want to see the non-financial results of their investments. And uh, a lot of it is, almost all of it is really underpinned by technology, healthcare solutions, educational solutions, you know, environmental solutions, et cetera. Uh, that's a, a big uh, generational 
conversation that that we enter into in earnest with families, and it's it's really interesting. It really brings in, in many cases, brings in the the younger generations for the first time to talk about their wealth, not as in how they're going to spend it, but really as to what they're doing with that as a family, what impact they're going to have in the areas that they care about. And I guess we're coming up on, uh, we're, we're getting near the end of our time here. Just my, my final question before I kick it back to Jeff would just be, is there, through this whole process of, you know, growing the firm, opening the firm, I mean, yours is, is a different kind of story because of the kind of clients you have and the, and the steps you've taken, but there's a lot of advisors who are looking at, hey, I left Wall Street in, in the late 90s or the early 2000s. I have my RIA. I'm getting, you know, my the phone is ringing from private equity money, as Jeff is, is, is underscoring. Um, what would you say to those kinds of people, like, um, you know, who are in a similar position? Maybe they don't have $60 billion or $40 billion in assets under management, which is, a lot, which is you know, huge. But maybe they have five hundred million or a billion or two hundred million or something like that. What would you say to those kinds of um, people and their predicament um, that they're you know when they're thinking about what next to do with their firm? Call me. No, I, I, <laughs> <laughs> there you have it, folks. Sales pitch yeah, right here no, on the Investment would, News podcast. <laughs> no, I, I would uh, I would suggest that there are uh, more, increasingly more solutions for those people and. Uh, some of them are maybe at a point where they say, look, I want to hand this business off to the right solution. So there's right. a generational transfer in some cases where someone's been an advisor for 20, 30, 40 years, and they just say, look, I want my clients to be well-treated, and I want to find the right end solution. So the good news is there are businesses you don't have to outright sell. You can merge into or you know have the, a business buy into um, your firm and what we've done in those cases uh, with with firms that want to join us are um, essentially allow them to do you know five year transitions. That's typically the time frame that we okay. Uh, and so there's a alignment, there's duration, there's transition time, et cetera, and it, it really helps give people comfort and then ultimately the end outcome that you know they're seeking. Uh, that's how we've handled it. But there are a lot of other solutions out there for, for advisors. What's kind of the new and interesting thing or the latest thing that's kind of has you intrigued in some way? In, on what topic? <laughs> on, on, on anything, basically. What are you looking at that, that's kind of raising, you know, raising your eyebrows somewhat? Uh, geopolitics are, is, you know, I, I, I'm lucky I have some people who I know who are, very well plugged in and I, I don't get particularly comforted by a lot of the conversations I have with people who are very well plugged in. So there's some dynamics that I just, I don't think anyone will, can really give a, a great answer as to what, what the geopolitical system's going to look like in two to three years between us, China, Russia, you know, Europe, et cetera. It, it feels un generally unstable but right. better better than it did perhaps two years ago in some ways overall but. geopolitical concerns yeah. yeah that would be one yeah okay jeff back to you man yeah just uh just one quick thing i wanted to go back to your references to acquisitions how much have you grown through acquisitions to this point and do you have any kind of a target on maybe the number of acquisitions you'd like to make because i would imagine a firm of your size and kind of diverse stature, you're you're probably not looking at a two hundred million dollar RIA, right? Uh, no, no. So we're we're not a volume 
uh, aggregator. I mean, we've really done, in our 23 years, we've done, in the U.S., we've done uh, two um, acquisitions or corporate combinations. I mean, so we, we, we are, um, we will look and, you know, uh, but we don't, we don't have a volume target. We just, it's really about the right fit quality of people. This is a human capital, like the ultimate human capital business. So um, there, there might be a single great advisor who has several clients that would be a great fit. And then from when they join us, they can be part of our growth as an individual. And, and you know, we need human capacity as we grow. And that, so we don't think about it in a linear manner. And, uh, it's, there, there are, there's a lot of nuance uh, to it. Okay. If that, sorry, if that answers your question, sorry. No, it did. Uh, thank you very much for that. I didn't know you had only made two acquisitions. That's, uh, that's some huge organic growth there. We, it's been about uh, two-thirds organic. And again, that's really the importance of having people collaborate and also making sure you understand when, when you, a team or a firm joins you, really understanding the talent that's there and the capacity that talent has. To work within the organization, and then making sure that you keep them and embrace them, and you know, and then grow because that's that's that is one of the constraints of the industry that people don't like to talk about is, you know, great advisors have capacity constraints. All right, well, uh, Mike Tiedemann, CEO Elvarium Tiedemann Holdings, thank you for joining us. Good luck with the publicly traded uh, stock out there, and uh, we'll hopefully get you back on here to update us on your next adventure. Great. Thank you both. Appreciate the time. Okay. Thanks, Mike. Launching every Monday, it's another episode of the Investment News Podcast. We want to thank our special guest, Mike Tiedemann, CEO of Alvarium Tiedemann Holdings, soon to be rebranded as Alt. We also want to thank our producer, Angelica Hester. We also want to thank our sponsor this week, Schwab Asset Management. Of course, you can find the podcast on investmentnews.com, as well as Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Leave us a review on Apple. Please follow us on Spotify. You can reach out to Jeff with any uh, health tips for his laryngitis via Twitter. His handle is at Benji Ryder. My handle is at BD News Guy. Stay tuned because we will be talking to you next week. 